Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for swimming in this morning. We appreciate that so much. Um, I also, Ted, Ted forgot something important to announce uh, today. I don't know that it was intentional. Surely not. Uh, the, 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 the church, we're having a special singing tonight, and it's a family singing event. There's going to be a lot of families, a lot of individuals who are going to be singing and, and uh, performing some music that they've prepared, and we are so excited about that. But I am thoroughly excited that we reached our million-dollar goal. Because my dearest friend and associate is warming up his pipes even as we speak. And so you will not want to miss it when we come back this evening and Mr. Ted Williams sings a solo for us. He said, what are we going to do after that? And I said, well, after they hear you, we may say, if you don't want to hear him again, we need to raise another million. But that's not true. I've actually heard him. He's got a nice voice, but you're going to get to hear it tonight. And so, Ted, thank you so much for volunteering to do that. We certainly appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John, and this time to chapter 4, John chapter 4. This morning, we're going to continue by looking at the signs that John has recorded for us in his Gospel, signs that testify to us regarding the person of Jesus and the purpose for which he came to earth. And as we do, we come to what I have identified as the third sign that that we're going to look at in this series of sermons. John calls it the, the second sign because it's the second sign that was performed in the town of Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. You remember we looked at that sign a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as Jesus performed that there. Uh, Then last week we looked at the fact that he left after that and went to Jerusalem uh, during the time of Passover to to the temple there. And and while he was there, he forcibly drove out all the folks who were selling animals for sacrifice. And and he drove out all the money changers who had uh, set up their, their wares there inside the temple courts. And at least temporarily, we see that Jesus restored order to the house of worship, uh, to to his father's house. And then uh, as you kind of continue reading through the Gospel of John, we find that after the Passover was completed, Jesus traveled back to Galilee, but he stopped off uh, in the the country of Samaria, where we read that he encountered a woman who had gone to uh, a well that had been dug by Jacob, and she went there to draw water, but she went there during the middle of the day, which was not the time that people typically went and drew water in the hottest part of the day. Normally that was done in the early hours of the morning or in the late evening when it was cooler. But but this woman went in the middle of the day and what that indicates to us is that she really didn't want to run into too many people. She 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 rather decided that she wanted to be alone because there was there was a lot of shame that she carried with her, a lot of embarrassment, and she was also very likely shunned by many of the people who also frequented that same well. And we learn why that occurred um, as as John continues to reveal to us in, in John chapter four. Uh, it's because during the conversation between her and Jesus, Jesus revealed to her what, what only she and those around that area would have known. And that's that she had had five husbands and she was living with a man, a sixth man, who was not her husband. 
And, and she immediately recognizes, I've never met this man before. He's not, he's not a Samaritan. He's not from this town. How in the world would he know that about me? Surely this man, there's something divinely strange about this man. And so we read that she leaves the disciples and Jesus there at that well and goes into the Samaritan town of Sychar, which, if you think about it, is interesting because she was strategically avoiding as many people as she could. But instead, she leaves and goes into the town where all the people are. And she tells them, according to chapter 4, verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then verse 30 says, they all went out of the city and came to him. Now Jesus is at the well with his disciples, and he's got this entourage of Samaritans who are coming to see him. And John tells us what happens next according to verse 39. He says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Isn't that amazing? I mean, listen, the Jews and the Samaritans were not friends. They did not like one another at all. They hated each other. Yet here we note that this town full of Samaritans actually urged this Jewish rabbi to stay with them. But even more amazing than that is that they don't just simply think of him as another Jewish rabbi. Rather, after listening to him teach and hearing him expound upon the Scripture's they become convinced that he was none less than the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's an amazing story of faith. And I didn't want us to miss and and to skip over it because I think it leads into and helps us understand the passage that I want us to look at today because it was after those two days in Samaria that Jesus was there, we read that he heads back into Galilee, back into the region of his hometown and his own country. And that brings us to the passage that I want us to consider together today, beginning in verse 43. So let's just pick up there and read down through the end of the chapter. The Bible says this, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, 
go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And he, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and we thank you for your love. We thank you for this day that you've given us to be able to open your word and to study it. I echo the prayers of Pastor Ted earlier who pray, Father, not only for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters that are in the Ukraine right now that are under, under siege. I pray for them. I pray for their faith, the strengthening of their faith as they trust in you. I pray for that not only for the church that is there. I pray for that for the church in Russia. I pray for that for the church that is all across Eastern Europe. I pray for that for the church that occurs, the, the members of, of your church that are here in, in the states. All of us, Lord, we, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in you, our sovereign God, who though we see all kinds of things going on in our world which we do not know and do not completely understand, but we know that you're a sovereign God through which you are orchestrating everything that you desire to come to pass. So we trust in you. We trust in you. We pray for those who are in harm's way and we ask for your your peace to rest upon them. We pray, God, that you would strengthen them. And we just ask that your son Jesus would be magnified through our testimony, through the testimony of those that are there, and through everything that happens, that you would be lifted up and glorified. I pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to begin considering the dilemma that uh, we find there in verses 43 through 45 and present what I hope will be um, a, a solution that will smooth out some of the wrinkles that, that are there. And in the process, I also hope to show you how important these verses are in helping us understand this entire passage. In, this, in these verses, I believe Jesus is, is, is showing us something. John is telling us something uh, that's important. And he's pointing to the fact that the Galileans had, and I want you to notice the first point that I've given to you there on your outline. The Galileans had a fundamentally flawed focus. A fundamentally flawed focus. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want you to notice what these verses tell us. Verse 43 tells us, that Jesus left Samaria after two days of teaching there, and he went to Galilee. Verse 44 begins with the word for. In the Greek language, that is the word gar. It is a conjunction that expresses causation. So, in other words, what we read in verse 44 tells us the reason that verse 43 occurred. 
In other words, John tells us that Jesus left Samaria where people were coming to faith, the place where, where he was being honored, a place where he was being recognized for who he truly is, the Savior of the world. And he left there to go to his home country of Galilee for or because he himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. Now, that's a little challenging to understand if we think about it that way, right? I mean, the question that comes to my mind is, why would he do that? Why would he leave Samaria where he was being honored and was being trusted in and believed in to go to his home country of Galilee where he says a prophet is without honor in his hometown? Why would he do that? That's not what I would have done. Of course, I'm not Jesus. Remember that Jesus once said he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And what that tells us is that Jesus was not caught off guard by the reaction of these hometown Jews to him. He was not surprised when he was rejected by his own people. In fact, in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, we read this, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Even so, notice that Jesus did not run away from the rejection and the dishonor that he would receive from his own countrymen. In fact, it was that that actually led him to the cross. It was the rejection of his own people that ultimately put him on Calvary's cross and to be able to make redemption for our sins. So that sheds a little light to me as far as I'm concerned on this naughty question that arises from this text. But then notice verse 45. We get verse 43 and verse 44 figured out, and then verse 45 comes along. Because verse 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans rejected him. No, it doesn't say that. It says that the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. So now we're confused again. Because he said in verse 45, verse 44, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. But then when he goes to his hometown, they receive him. So did Jesus get it wrong? Were these, were these Galileans legit people after all? Did they, did they express faith in him as the Samaritans had done and become believers? No. And I can be confident in saying that because of the reasoning that John provides for the reception that Jesus received. You see, it was because they, like Jesus, had gone to Jerusalem during the time of Passover, and while they were there, they, notice, had seen all the things he did at the feast. In other words, they had watched as Jesus had performed many miraculous signs while he was in Jerusalem. Now, you may say, wait a minute, preacher, what miraculous signs did he perform when he was there? John doesn't record Jesus doing any miraculous signs while he's in Jerusalem. And you're right, John does not record that. But John is also one who is very upfront and tells us when he gives us the reason for why he wrote the book to begin with. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is clear. He says, hey, I didn't write down everything that Jesus did. 
If I had written down everything Jesus did, I suppose that the books could not contain, the world could not contain the books that had everything written down in them. He says elsewhere. And so we don't, we're not privy to everything that Jesus did when he was in Jerusalem. But these Galileans were there, and they saw all the miracles that Jesus performed when he was there. And so when we take all of what John says in these chapters into perspective, we realize that Jesus did do some miraculous signs and wonders there. And when he finally came home back to Galilee, everyone received him. Everyone welcomed him back because they wanted to see him do more signs. We need you to do more stuff for our entertainment, Jesus. And that explains that first point that I gave to you. The Galileans had a fundamentally flawed focus on the signs that Jesus performed. In fact, let me point you back to the final verses of John chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll just read them for you. These verses are written in the context of the signs that Jesus performed when he was in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and all the Galileans and the Judeans were all there watching him do these things, John chapter 2, verse 23 and following, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, Jesus knew that the faith that these people supposedly had in him was flawed. That's why he wouldn't commit himself to them. Their faith in him was based upon the signs and the miracles that he performed, not upon their receiving him as the Messiah. And so by the time he got back to Galilee, he knew that they were not receiving him for who he truly was. Rather, they were excited to see Jesus the performer. They wanted Jesus the magician. They wanted Jesus the miracle worker. They were not looking for Jesus the Messiah. Now compare that what we learned about the Samaritans in the previous verses. According to verse 41, the Samaritans believed because of Jesus' own word. They, They declared to themselves in verse 42, we believe for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Did you notice that nowhere is it mentioned that Jesus did any signs and wonders in Samaria? Not one miracle is mentioned there. And and even if Jesus had done so, those who were there declared that they believed in Jesus not because of the signs, but because of the word that Jesus spoke. All the faith that is expressed there by this woman and by the others of that city of Sychar, all of that resulted as because of the word of Jesus. It came because they heard the message that he preached. So I believe that verses 43 through 45 really highlight the difference that exists between the two receptions that Jesus received, one by the Samaritans, the other by the Galileans. And it demonstrates that indeed there truly was no real honor shown to Jesus in his home country. And it further helps us recognize why it is possible to have a fundamentally flawed focus a focus that gets excited about Jesus, a focus that that wants to be wowed by the miraculous displays of power. But listen, such is a flawed focus, and it is not faith. It is something that is focused purely on the superficial. 
It desires to see Jesus jump through hoops and do all kinds of things for the value of our entertainment. But let's read on and notice what happens next. Because upon arriving back in Cana of Galilee, where he had performed that first sign of turning, mirror, uh, turning water into wine, Jesus is approached by a nobleman or a royal official, depending on the version that you're reading. The word in the Greek is the word basilikos. It, it literally means a man of the king. And in this case, the royal official was most likely employed by King Herod, who was the tetrarch. He was the quarter king that was over that part of, of Galilee. And because of this man's position, and because he was likely a man who had wealth and had, had power, but, but we see that all of his wealth and all of his power and all of his position really were of no value to him in this instance, because John tells us that this man's son was sick to the point of death. So when he heard that Jesus was back in Galilee, this man of whom it was said that he could, could do all kinds of signs and wonders, well, this nobleman who lived in the city of Capernaum, which was, scholars suggest, was around 15 to 20 miles away from Cana. Well, when he heard that he was in Cana, this man went. He traveled that 15 to 20 miles, went straight there to beg Jesus to come back to Capernaum to heal his son. Now, based upon what we learn here, let me point out the next thing that I think this text reveals to us. I want you to notice it there on your outline. It is not only possible to have a fundamentally flawed focus, but it's also possible to have a desperate but deficient devotion. Desperate but deficient devotion. Consider this nobleman. His son is near the point of death, and all he wants to do is to get to Jesus because he's heard that Jesus can do miraculous things. He can change water into wine. He's probably heard by this point he can bring sight to the blind. He can, he can raise those who are lame to be able to walk again. He can cause the deaf to hear. If he can do all of those things, then surely he can help my son. And so this royal official is willing to do anything to try to save his son's life. You know, if you've ever held one of your children in your arms, sick with a fever, lethargic, even worse, if you've ever had to see your child hooked up to IVs and to monitors in a hospital room, then, then you at least have some idea of what this father was feeling and experiencing. There is nothing more frightening or difficult, nothing to make you more heartsick than to have a critically ill child and experience the feeling of helplessness, unable to do anything about it. Such was the case with this nobleman. He was heartbroken, he was terrified, he was panicked, he was desperate, and he sought out Jesus looking for a miracle. He's hoping to see his son regain his health and continue to live, and he comes to Jesus and according to the nature of the Greek word that is used there, he asked Jesus over and over and over and over again to come down to Capernaum and to heal his boy. He begs Jesus, pleads with him, please come heal my son. Jesus' response is shocking. Truthfully, we're not prepared for it. Rather than speaking with compassion, as we might expect, Jesus issues a rebuke. He says in verse 48, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, 
you will by no means believe. Wow. It's not exactly the Sunday school Jesus that we're accustomed to, is it? His response appears to convey a lack of, of care, a lack of concern for this man in the face of his desperate desire to see his boy healed from a deadly sickness. Now, it's important that I point out to you that, that when Jesus says this, he's not speaking only to the nobleman. There's a plural pronoun there that, that we have to make it show up in English. It, it's natural there in the Greek. It's not natural in the English. But that's why the word people is there. And many of you will see that in italics. That means it was added. But it's added to show that when Jesus says it, he's talking to everybody that's there. He says, you people. He's speaking not only to the nobleman, but to all the Galileans that are there. And he basically called them all a bunch of sign seekers. Folks who weren't really interested in him theologically, but only pragmatically, only in what he could do for them. In other words, Jesus rebuked them because they didn't care about who he was, only in what he could do. Jesus rebuked them because they were focusing solely on the signs and not the greater spiritual realities to which those signs pointed. Now, if we consider what's going on here in this passage, I think we'll recognize that with this rebuke, Jesus is letting this royal official know that the faith that he has in him is deficient. It's a deficient faith because it's only interested in results. It's only interested in what Jesus would do. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the royal official is not interested in Christology or fulfilled prophecy or even in signs and wonders. He is interested in the well-being of his child. Now, none of us want to be too heavy-handed with this man at this particular point. He's heartsick. He's grieved. He's desperate. But just as Jesus points out, so we must recognize that even in his desperation, this man's fate is lacking and it's incomplete. The deficiency of this man's faith is evident in the fact that he viewed Jesus simply as a means to an end. His son was, was deathly ill and he was about to die and he wanted Jesus to fix the problem. This man, we could put it more bluntly, this man was not interested in receiving salvation. He was interested only in a solution. He was not interested in forgiveness of sins. He was interested in Jesus fixing his son. I don't think the nobleman's approach is all that uncommon. In fact, I think it's quite common. It's quite common for people to come to Jesus like this. Many people run to Jesus and they declare their devotion to him when they need him. Whenever there's a sickness, whenever there's a crisis, whenever there's a problem that they want fixed, they like knowing that Jesus is available to them when they want him. They'll even sometimes throw in a few extra dollars into the offering just to be assured that their prayer request is heard. To them, that's who Jesus is. He's a God that exists to meet their needs. Someone they can run to whenever they need help or relief. In other words, he is a means to an end. And the end is their comfort and their happiness and their health and their contentment. 
For many, the value of Jesus lies not in who he is, but in what he can do for them. In his book entitled God in the Wasteland, David Wells has written this. He says, we have turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. I want you to know the natural disposition of humanity is to always put ourselves at the center of the equation. It's to elevate our desires and our wants and our needs to the top of the priority list. And when something happens in our lives that cuts against the grain of our happiness or our safety or our health, our natural response is to run to Jesus to get him to fix whatever it is that we believe is, to be, is broken. And that is what I mean when I say that it is possible to have a desperate but deficient devotion to Jesus. So Jesus rebuked this nobleman along with the rest of the Galileans, but then something interesting takes place there in verse 49. Notice it. This man... He's just been rebuked with Jesus by Jesus and all the rest of the Galileans. He's been, he's accepted what's happened. Notice he didn't argue. You notice he didn't stomp off angry that Jesus called him out. Instead, he just continued to plead with Jesus to come to his house before his son dies. He's undeterred. In his desperation, he continues to appeal to Jesus' compassion. What's interesting to me is that the nobleman obviously believed Jesus had the ability to heal his son. Otherwise, there'd been no need for him to continue to hang there. He would have just went on about his business. It reminds me of the way, honestly, that Jesus' mother responded back in Cana at the, the, the turning of water into wine. You remember? There, Jesus rebuked his mother politely saying, look, my hour has not yet come. And she took the rebuke and turned and looked at the servants that were standing there and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. In other words, she accepted what Jesus said, but she still had a persevering faith that Jesus could and would do something. And she was perfectly content to leave it in her son's hands to decide what he would do. Well, I want you to notice here, this royal official also believed Jesus could do something for his son, and he persevered in his faith. He didn't just walk away, though, and leave it in Jesus' hands. He continued pleading with him over and over again, please come heal my son. And Jesus responded to the nobleman in verse 50 by saying, go your way, your son lives. I'd love to know, I'd love to have heard how Jesus said I don't think he said, would you just get out of here? Your son's going to be okay. I don't think he said it that way. I think there was compassion in his voice. Look, go home. Your son is going to be fine. Trust me. There had to be something. 
something in the words. Jesus spoke. Because notice, the change in this man immediately occurs. He was a man who had been panicked. He was a man who had been begging Jesus. And suddenly it tells us there that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. You see this turmoil all of a sudden is smoothed out in his life. In the midst of his desperation, the nobleman heard the promise of Jesus and he believed it. And verse 51 tells us that his faith was well-founded because as he went, As he was going down, and it means going down back to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him, your son lives. And even more significant is when he asked, when did he get better? And they respond, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now the nobleman did some quick calculations in his head. The seventh hour the, the Jewish hours always typically began at 6 a.m., so the seventh hour would have been about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. He goes back and thinks, yeah, it was right after lunch that I had this conversation with Jesus, and he said to me what he did, and he realized that it was at that exact time that he, Jesus had said his son would live. In other words, it was the moment, the very moment that Jesus spoke the words, listen, in Cana, 15 to 20 miles away, that his son suddenly became well in Capernaum. Now, don't miss this, though. Don't miss this tidbit of information because you'd you'd blow right past it if you didn't slow down and think about it for just a second. Notice that an entire day has passed between verse 50 and verse 51. Verse 50 was when the man believed the promise that Jesus would heal his son. Verse 51 is when he met his servants. It's the next day. What happened? Well, obviously this panic-stricken man decided that I can trust Jesus enough that I don't have to run back to see what's going to happen. I believe what's going to happen so much so that He went to bed somewhere in and around Cana or on the way back so that it was the following day when he got home. Now, 15 to 20 miles is a pretty decent walk. But if you're in a hurry and you want to get there, you can. But he chose to stay. And why do I point that out? It's because I believe it demonstrates the fact that this man's faith had moved from a deficient devotion to Jesus because of only what Jesus could do for him to a confident resolve in the person that Jesus was and in the word that Jesus had spoken. I believe that because he believed the word of Christ. He had confidence that what Jesus said would happen would actually happen, even though he had not yet seen it occur. And he acted based upon that belief. And it illustrates the last point that I want you to see. The last point on your outline is this. It shows us a firm and fixed faith. A firm and fixed faith. I believe that the nobleman's response illustrates that he had moved past his desperate but deficient devotion to Jesus. And it moved even further than the fundamentally flawed focus on the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed. Having experienced Jesus' mercy and compassion, 
This man now came to understand who Jesus was and he believed in him and he came to possess nothing less than saving faith in Jesus as his savior. And it gets even better than that because notice the last part in verse 53. And he himself believed and his whole household. Don't miss that. You see, what that tells me is that at the very least, this young boy who had laid there sick almost at the point of death, desperately ill, had received from Christ many miles away a word that had come to him in some miraculous way in which he did not know how, but it had healed him from the sickness in which he was there. And now his father stands before him giving testimony. There was a man named Jesus in Cana who said that you would be well. And at that particular moment, you were raised up and received life back in you again. And he is the one who not only delivered you physically, but he is the one who will deliver you spiritually. And he became not only his healer, he became his savior. And that is what brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. You see, I believe that this passage teaches us that our interest in Jesus must move past superficial and self-centered motivations to a faith that sees him for who he truly is, the Christ, the Savior of the world. R.C. Sproul has written this on this text. He says, the healing of the nobleman's son is just one more glimpse of the person of Christ The person who by his command, by his very word, brings life out of death, safety out of danger, healing out of disease, salvation out of lostness. This is our Jesus. And it is whom we believe. And that is why we're called Christians. Now let me just pose a couple of questions for us aimed at application and we'll close today. The first one that I want to ask you is this. In light of everything that this passage reveals, you and I have to take a hard look at ourselves and we have to ask ourselves this question, am I guilty of worshiping a God of my own making? Do I find that my connection and my attraction to Christ and his church centers on the things that Jesus can do for me more than on who Jesus is and what he's already done? And taking that a step further, we should examine ourselves and ask, do I mostly look at Jesus as a means to an end? Does my prayer life and and my devotion to Christ primarily center around him being a fixer of my problems, a bringer of happiness and comfort when those things are disrupted? Do I treat him like a divine butler who is only there to be at my beck and call? To use the words of this outline, is my focus flawed? Is my devotion deficient? Listen, if the Lord came and and examined your life this morning and put you under the same microscope that he put the Galileans and this royal official under, what would his verdict be? Christ calls us to faith in him to believe upon his promises, to trust in his word that he has spoken to us. And that faith is to be a firm and fixed faith. Does a firm and fixed faith believe that the Lord can do wonderful and miraculous signs? You better bet it does. 
Does a firm and, and, and fixed faith take our desperate longings and requests to the Lord asking for his intervention? Absolutely it does. But a firm and fixed faith is not rooted in the outcome of those circumstances, but rather in the one who stands over all of them and says, trust in me and obey my word. The question before you this morning is this, what kind of faith do you have? I want you to know that the true Jesus has been presented to you in this sign. And in it, you have seen the glory of the Son of God who grants eternal life. And the question is, will you be like the Samaritans or the Galileans? Will you be like the nobleman at the beginning of this story? Or will you be like him at the end? After he embraced Christ for who he truly was. Will you move past the superficial and self-centered motivations and embrace Jesus as the Savior of the world and your personal Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing our, our deficiencies, recognizing our flaws recognizing that we are, we are frail people who often express frail faith. But you call us to a deeper and a firmer and a, a fast and a fixed and a sure confidence in you because of what you promised us. Many of the things that we are confident of are things we've never seen and yet we step out in obedience and live by faith because of your sure word that you have given to us. My prayer is today that you would strengthen our faith in the midst of what looks to us around the world today as such trying and uncertain times. And truly they are. But as uncertain as all of the circumstances around us are, we can be absolutely sure that you are a God who has taken everything into consideration. You're a God who wins in the end. You're a God who has promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. And even those who are in harm's way right now physically can take confidence in that. So my prayer is, is that you would use this passage today and use this word to strengthen us in our resolve to have faith in you and to follow you. If there is one in this room today who has never trusted in you and does not have the confidence that comes from knowing that you are their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that your spirit would rest heavy on them, bring conviction of their sin upon them, that they might turn and repent and trust in you to be their Savior and Lord. If there is one who has walked away from you and is living in, living in sin and refusing to to trust in you and to live their life in obedience. I pray that today that your spirit would bring conviction to them, that they would turn to you in faith and in repentance, believing that you will forgive them and that they would walk worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Lord, these are my prayers. I ask them as one who truly God knows that he too needs to have his faith strengthened each and every day in the Savior who gave his life 
from me. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.